Today I'm talking to Isabella Tree. Isabella is an award-winning journalist and author and lives with her husband, the conservationist Charlie Burrell, in the middle of a pioneering rewilding project in West Sussex. She is author of six non-fiction books and her book, Wilding, the story of the ambitious journey she and Charlie undertook to rewild their farm, has sold over 300,000 copies worldwide and has been translated into eight languages. Forced to accept that intensive farming on the heavy clay of their land at Nep was economically unsustainable. Isabella Tree and her husband, Charlie Burrell, made a spectacular leap of faith. They decided to step back and let nature take over. Thanks to the introduction of free roaming cattle, ponies, pigs and deer, proxies of the large animals that once roamed Britain, the 3,500 acre project has seen extraordinary increases in wildlife numbers and diversity in little over a decade. Extremely rare species, including turtle doves, nightingales, peregrine falcons, lesser spotted woodpeckers, and purple emperor butterflies are now breeding at NEP, and populations of other species are rocketing. The Burrell's degraded agricultural land has become a functioning ecosystem again, heaving with life, all by itself. Wilding won the Richard Jeffries Prize for Nature Writing and was shortlisted for the Wainwright Prize and was one of the Smithsonian's top 10 science books for 2018. In 2020, Isabella was awarded a CIEEM medal for her contribution to ecology and environmental management. And in 2021, she received the Royal Geographical Society's Ness Award. She served on the Mayor of London's 2022 to 2023 Rewilding London Task Force. The Book of Wilding, her new book, A Practical Guide to Rewilding Big and Small, is published by Bloomsbury and has been described as a handbook of hope and an indispensable guide to the restoration of the living planet. Hi, Isabella. I am so excited to talk to you. I really have been more excited than any guest um, that you accepted to come and talk on the show. So thank you so much. Um, Could you tell the listeners where you are at the moment, uh, where you're speaking from? Um, Well, I'm thrilled to be on, and that's the nicest introduction ever. Um, I'm sitting in my rather cluttered study um, at NEP, um, so in the middle of our rewilding project. Um, this is a, a room full of books and a lot of clutter uh, that was actually recently taken the piss of by um, uh, Private Eye, who who had a sort of cartoon of my study with um, uh, wilding underneath it. <laughs> and I've now framed the cartoon. <laughs> oh, that I is was a little bit, little bit upset about the the empty whiskey bottles on the floor. <laughs> That's so funny. We're not recording video, but I actually tidied my books in the background <laughs> for a press record. But no, it looks um, like a, a hub, a beehive in there, because I know all the work that you've done there. Um, and I'm going to put in the introduction, the story of NEP. But because we've only got a certain amount of time, could you tell us what's happening at NEP at the moment? 
At the moment, gosh, I mean, it's always so um, exciting. I, I, you know, my mind is in a hundred directions. Uh, we've got um, our white storks, you know, the first white storks to nest in Britain since 1416. Um, and this is about the third year of our cohort of, of wild nesting storks. They're all fledging. So we've got about 20 or so juveniles kind of, you know, crashing about all over the place and landing in our, our wetlands and learning how to how to be, you know, fly. And we expect that they'll be going off, some of them at least, on migration to Europe quite soon. So that's always a troubling moment when you you kiss goodbye to them, you know, and you you think, are they ever going to come back? Um, are are they tracked at all? Do you, can you track them or? We have GPS tags on about nine of them. Um, and that we, 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 we tag about nine every year. So we can follow them by satellite, which is, very exciting. And we know that some of our birds have gone to Morocco. Um, some of them hang out on landfill in Spain, very unsalubrious, but they, you know, they seem to like a bit of landfill. Um, and we've had several that have come back, including one that was trying to nest on my chimney just above me here this year. Um, that was our first juvenile to return to, to NEP. So we know that they have a homing instinct here now, which is a real success for the project. We've got the last of our purple emperor butterflies out there. They've been a bit buffeted about by the storms we've had over the last few days. So they're looking quite ragged and, and tatty. It's the end of their season two, but somehow they will have um, laid eggs and you know those eggs will hibernate in various stages over the winter, which is just still mind boggling to me that somehow these little tiny beings strap themselves to branches and see out all the colds and frosts of the winter and emerge as these beautiful purple butterflies in July. Um, what else? We've got our usual safaris going. We're about to launch our wilding, wilding kitchen. Our son Ned um, is uh, launching um, a, a cafe restaurant in a converted barn. It used to be one of our dairies, a lovely 18th century barn that's opening in two weeks. So we're in the headlights for that. And that's going to be a kind of all sustainable, um, organic restaurant celebrating really, really delicious food cooked very simply and kind of showcasing our, our free roaming animals and our new market garden. So we're really excited about that. Yeah, that's going to be a wonderful destination for people to come. And I saw in your new book that he had started a food truck. Um, so that's probably generated into the kitchen now. So that sounds like a really exciting idea. And just as we're talking about this book, it's called The Book of Wilding, A Practical Guide to Rewilding Big and Small. And I'm not sure if it's your second book, but the most book we're most familiar with is The Rewilding Story of Nep. But this book is a practical guide. And I have to say that it is the best book that I have ever listened to. I haven't got my hands on it yet because I ordered it. <laughs> so it's been quite frustrating because I've been listening and then going to the PDF, but it's all there. You can get it on Audible. Um, and the reason why it's so useful is because all the information that you can really rely on is there. So anybody that has a project, big or small, can go to the book and be certain that this information is correct. And it's a step-by-step. -step. I think it reminds me of one other book that I had in my life, which was so useful. It was a book by Lucinda Green on eventing. 
And I was here in the west of Ireland with no internet. And she wrote this book about three-day eventing with pictures. And I trained my horse through her book. Um, it was so useful. Oh, wow. there. Yeah, but this, I mean, this I kind of feel is the same thing because I'm so excited now. I've become frustrated with the project. And now I've got so many good ideas from you. Um, so can you tell us a little about the new book? Well, it was really inspired by... You know, the, this sort of extraordinary um, response we've had to NEP, people who come and visit. Um, and I guess, you know, in this age of eco-anxiety, it's very difficult for an individual um, to feel that they can make a difference, that they can actually do something. You know, we're, the climate change crisis, the biodiversity loss is so overwhelming um, that quite often, you know, the instinct is just to put your head in the sand and think, oh, God, I can't do anything about it. Um, but I think what NEP has shown is that, you know, nature can rebound so quickly if you let it. And that story of hope has really been kind of galvanizing, I suppose. It's something we're just beginning to realize. We get thousands of emails and letters. Um, we have poems and pieces of art and even compositions um, written, inspired by people's visits to NEP. And so often people are saying, you know, we love what you're doing. We don't have thousands of acres. Perhaps they have a thousand, uh, sorry, a hundred, you know, it's a small holding, a farm. Perhaps they've got an orchard or more often they've just got a back garden. Can they rewild? And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, so this book really is to show the spectrum of rewilding from the very wildest um, part, which is kind of Yellowstone National Park kind of scale, to the scale of NEP, to the scale of a small farm, to down to a churchyard, an orchard, a garden, even a window box. And so it's applying the kind of principles that we've learned through rewilding the larger landscape um, and applying them to smaller areas. And that's not saying you simply abandon your garden and just let it go. If you do that, obviously you'll get trees growing in it and eventually they'll close out the light and you'll have very little room for any plants to grow at all. So biodiversity will just crash. So rewilding isn't about just letting go at the smallest stage, smaller scale. It's more about doing the interventions, but with nature in the front of your mind. It's, it's becoming a beaver. It's acting like a wild boar. It's thinking like a, a pony. Um, and, and so in that way, it's quite um liberating i think and it can it can really shed some idea shed some preconceived conceptions you know about about how we think about the landscape and conventional gardening we're having a, a very good fun time at the moment having a run in with alan titchmarsh and monty don who say that you can't rewild a garden um and i'm longing to show them because i really think you can and i think they'll love it i think they just don't quite get what we're on about yet yeah, I mean, I told you a little bit about our project, but since I've um, listened to the book now, 25 Acres, we closed off about 20 years ago and it's shattered limestone pavement. And the reason we closed it at that point was we lost a cow. It's very um, deep. There's quite a lot of scrub in it. And I only found her by the smell, unfortunately, eventually. And she had broken her leg. She got it caught between two rocks. So we we closed it off to um, the cattle. Um, and since then, obviously, it's been regrowth and it's generating back into a forest. Now we have ash dieback, 
But since listening to the book, I can understand what to do better with that piece. So I don't think we can put the large herbivores back, but to try and think of putting some smaller herbivores, maybe some of the goats with perhaps the electric collar system and um, some pigs. Now they're difficult to keep in because we all, we have rescue pigs and <laughs> <laughs> within um, Dyson is one of them. And within 15 minutes of turning off his electric fence, he was down at the um, eco cabins joining a picnic. So, you know, they, they <laughs> test it continuously. <laughs> We've been there. You've been there, yeah. With pigs, especially. <laughs> With um, pigs, for sure. They, they've gate-crashed weddings and tents and um, swum across a lake to get into the Mr. Whippy tent and hoovered up two sacks of powdered ice cream. <laughs> you know, you name it. Oh, my God, that's so funny. <laughs> so this poor couple were sipping a glass of wine by their slow cabin and the bush started shaking. They said they thought they they felt like they were on a safari and the next thing Dyson with his tusks came out and join the picnic. <laughs> so I'm not sure how we would keep them in, but I'd love it if they tested the electric fencing system for collars for pigs. Um, I don't know how it's that... It's difficult with a pig, isn't it? Because they haven't really got necks to speak of. Um, yeah. You know, I, I can't... And they're so, as you say, so adventurous. And, you know, they get into all sorts of areas that it'd be quite easy for them to slip the collar. But, yeah. I mean, I think maybe a harness might be might work better, but... I, th I think for for conservation grazing um, and and for restoration, nature restoration, you know, pigs can play a really important role. Probably not too many of them, but you know, the right numbers, yeah. hugely important keystone species. And and we also, you know, be wonderful to um, have horses licensed for um, no fence collars too, um, because you know they they are you know fantastic for for rewilding. So. Mm. It, it, they, it's they've been, really interesting and new invention it's going to change yeah. the way we 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 run our, our manage our landscapes yeah yeah they have it with the old irish goats there's a herd of them with the collars yeah um so looking at the book with your it's so interesting you give the unit numbers recommended per acre or hectare and i was looking at perhaps three pigs and 15 goats or something, reintroducing them back into that area. So I think we could manage the goats. The other thing with the pigs is we walk a pig as an activity. You can book the activity. And when you send That's off amazing. the... I know she's got five... <laughs> she's got 400 five-star reviews, Amelia. Um, but... <laughs> When you, you, of course, you have to send to America for the harness and you have to give the measurement of the neck and the tummy and the say it's the same exact measurement. So she's not exactly Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> I, I, I think we'd have, we'd have very different measurements for our pigs at different times of the year. I mean, you know, when they when they've been munching out on acorns in the autumn, I mean, they just double in size. It's just phenomenal. And you don't give them any supplementary feed even the pigs no no none of the animals have supplementary feed so they're they're essentially fending for themselves all year round um and that's really important because they will change their sort of diets in the winter um and they'll be eating completely different things the pigs at the moment will be grazing a lot there's lots of lovely clover out there which they love um and in the winter obviously when the ground is soft they'll be rootling and they'll also be jumping in the lakes and um, swimming underwater for um, submerged acorns. No. Um, 
It's amazing. They can hold their breath underwater. I think they're, they're one of the few mammals, land mammals, apart from us, that can hold their breath underwater. Um, but, um, you know, our, our cattle obviously browse mostly in the winter when the grass is gone. And that's really important for them, but also for the, the habitat, you know, the browsing, debarking trees. We also know that the tannins in, in bark and twigs reduces methane. So it's a significant methane reducer. Uh, so it's a really important, the effect that all their, their, their diet has on, on their gut biome. Um, something we just have forgotten about in, in intensive farming. Yes, we really need to get back to uh, this natural kind of um, farming and the welfare of the animals so that they get to actually live a life. Is there anything new that's moved into NEP recently that you haven't had in previous years? Well, last year we had this astonishing discovery of a large tortoiseshell butterfly breeding at NEP. So there were, there were you know... Uh, about a dozen of them. And this was a butterfly that was thought to have been extinct in Britain for 50 years. So it was just another species that has somehow popped up miraculously. I don't know whether it was holding on somewhere on some tiny pocket of forgotten land and just happened to find net and, and a partner <laughs> to breed, um, or even got blown over here or flew over here from the continent. I mean, it's just, it's it's a mystery. It's an endless sort of series of miracles, I think, the 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 rarity of the species that find us. Um, so we had a fly new to Britain a couple of years ago. That was that got some some people very very excited. <laughs> How wonderful! Can you tell me a little bit about you were talking about getting groups of nearby farmers together talking? Um, I think I would struggle with some of my neighbours. How would you approach somebody who is has a very tidy farm and is farming traditionally and conventionally um, and intensively? Well, I think we've seen a complete change of attitude actually in our local farmers recently um, we've got this project now called wheel to waves um, which is um, you know uh, in, in at the end of my book wilding I mentioned that you know our dream would be one day to connect net with the sea we've got this incredible marine conservation project off the Sussex coast 300 square kilometers of kelp restoration and we just thought it would be amazing to be able to connect our biodiversity hotspot with a marine habitat and crossing the chalk downs from the clay and getting down to the shingle on, on, on the beach would be amazing. Um, and in lockdown, uh, my husband had a call from um, a farmer called James Baird. He's a, he's a conventional farmer. He grows peas for bird's eye, among other things. And he said to Charlie... Um, that he'd read my book during lockdown and he was really intrigued by it. He'd come two or three times at different seasons to look at our cattle, to check them out and to see if they really were in as good condition as I described them in the book. And thank God they passed muster. Um, anyway, James was so excited by what's happening here that he said to Charlie, you know, in, in your book, you say that, you know, you would like to connect one day with the sea um, I am that connection. I have the only piece of land between Brighton and Bognor that hasn't been built on. Um, it's called the Climping Gap. Um, I front right onto the sea. I'm willing to sacrifice some of my fields to return to salt marsh. Um, uh, he's considering going pesticide free of, of some areas of his land. 
Um, and he's so exciting and passionate. He feels he's been farming. He's now, I guess, in his 50s, but he wants to give back to nature. So he's going to carry on being a farmer, perhaps a conventional farmer, but some of his land will be given over to nature. And he's already within six months of talking to us, and this was a couple of years ago now, he signed a memorandum of understanding with several really big landowners and farmers between us. We've now started the Wheel to Waves project, which is about 100 miles of green corridor. It's now going to connect with the Ashdown Forest to the northeast of us because they're on lovely heathland and also feeling beleaguered by um, uh, development and intensive farming around them. So they want to connect with us. Um, two other rivers want to connect with us. So we've now got a kind of three-pronged trident attack on the sea um, with the Arran, the Ada, and the Ouse rivers. So in all, the, the buffer zones around our notional corridors will take about 20% of the land of both East and West Sussex. So it's a really ambitious project, but much of that is talking to farmers. And really James is key here because he is a farmer you know, we've we've turned to the kind of extreme eccentric side with the rewilding. So a lot of farmers don't feel they can talk to us in the same way. But James kind of bridges that gap. And he's a very persuasive, articulate, passionate man. Um, but we've also found that, you know, we have a, a farm cluster. Um, we're part of the Upper Ada group. There's about 40 farmers in that cluster. And we um, helped to kind of install I suppose a, a facilitator who was a kind of independent facilitator just to talk to farmers about what they could do for nature and how we could connect together could we could we grow out hedgerows could we plant new hedgerows um, how could we connect those two isolated pockets of ancient woodland together um, what about that boggy bit of your field that has always been an absolute nightmare to farm could that be released to scrub up and just be allowed to rewild? Are there little places where it wouldn't matter to you? And um, in different degrees, we're finding that farmers are, are being much more imaginative and creative about finding space for nature on their land. And I think all it takes is just a start, even if it's a tiny start, because then you know you find that it's not so frightening and it's not so threatening and that actually it's fun and enjoyable. And if you start seeing species coming back, you might get into your butterflies or your birds and slowly and incrementally, you will add more. So yeah. it's it, it's very exciting, but I think there's definitely a mind change, a, a, a sort of shift in mindset. There is a mind shift and there's a little bit of fear involved, but I love the thought of your pigs being able to travel down to the sea. That would be just hilarious. <laughs> We'd love that one day. And, um, I mean, I think... There's so many complications, obviously, about livestock um, crossing other people's land. Oh, you know, yeah. even if you pull up, we have pulled up our boundaries. We've got one neighbour who has put in 600 acres into our project. Um, but, you know, you have to have a very good relationship with that person to be able to work out what happens when animals spend all their time on one person's land and not the other. And you know, do you share the profit? So you do you share the herd? How does it work? Um, let alone when you've got animals that you're thinking might cross boundaries. And what about, um, you know, the sort of biosecurity of TB and all sorts of other things. So at the moment that our corridor is really 
for other species than the large herbivores. It's for all the small mammals. It's for the birds. It's all the insects, you know, that that don't have um, high distances that they can they can travel. Um, it's for the it's for the spores of fungi. You know, it's for everything that needs to have connected habitat in order to move mm. and respond to climate change and pollution and everything else. Um, one day, you know, we might get. I mean, obviously, deer. Um, um, yeah. uh, are pretty pretty permeable, but um, um, and and badgers and foxes, but um, the livestock is is it will be is more it, of a problem. It's an, it's an issue. What I, one other thing I loved in the book is the respect you have for the scrubland, and you said the thorn bush is the mother of the oak, and we have you know our sanctuary. Somebody I've said it before that when we start when we opened ten years ago, somebody said, "Why do you need a sanctuary for bushes?" Um, and <laughs> You know, the mindset is changing a bit there, but I think it's it's really important um, to respect the scrubland as well and to get to uh, to get people to understand why it's so important. We have zero tolerance for scrub in our in our landscapes at the moment, and it's one of the most biodiverse habitats there is. You know, it, it used to be really valued in medieval times. Every every bush in, in a scrubland has a value, whether it's for making gunpowder or medicine or, or you know, tree fodder for cattle or whatever. Um, but uh, we've lost that connection with those plants. And because of that, um, wildlife has lost a really precious resource because we had the British Trust for Ornithology here a couple of years ago doing a, a breeding songbird survey. And they were absolutely blown away by the songbirds in our scrub. They reckon we probably have one of the highest densities of songbirds in Britain. And that's because, you know, they've got that thorny protection from predation. They can safely nest there successfully. But they've also got, you know, berries, seeds, nuts, um, uh, buds of leaves, buds of flowers, everything, insects that congregates in that kind of habitat. And um it, you know, we we we. It's very easy to get scrub back, but we've just got to be, you know, aware that it's it's actually a precious resource. And even now, you get conservationists in nature reserves spending their weekends scrub bashing. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the only um, bush that's protected um, in Ireland up to the present day is the whitethorn or the hawthorn because people don't want to take it down because it's the fairy tree so you're pretty certain um to have especially a lone hawthorn motorway down near ennis was actually rerouted to go around a hawthorn bush and you can is google, that right you can go on google maps and and put in fairy tree and you'll see where they they're protested um <laughs> but amazing um, i know it's a good story so the I think it was the Brehon laws, and I'm not sure if they were just in Ireland, but they were pre-Celtic laws about the trees and the bushes, and everyone had a value. So I mean, if you cut an oak tree down, you had to give two and a half um, cows, and but it went down to every single. So respect for every make, make, makes you think twice. Yeah. Yes, you wouldn't do it. So we really need to bring yeah. that law back in. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so is there anything that you'd like to say to the listeners um, now that either that you could encourage them to do or or is there any message that you'd like to send? Well, I think it really is a message of hope, you know, that, that we can get nature back um, uh, very quickly if we let it and if we go about it in the right way. Um, there's more gardens 
area uh, um, in in terms of area um, in the UK um, than there is um, under nature reserves. So if we think about how powerful that could be in getting back biodiversity, um, just simply going pesticide free, you know, having wildflower lawns instead of monoculture, green grass, um, you know, just shifting our perspectives really to think about what do creatures really need. Um, One of the things I was really struck by, you know, we've just started rewilding our garden here. It's taken us 15 years to get round to it. You know, we just hadn't thought about it. And we suddenly realized, my God, you know, there's so much more we could be doing in our own garden. And why are we putting up um, bird boxes everywhere? You know, why are we going to the garden center to buy these things? Um, There should be lovely thorny scrub or dense foliage, you know, wisterias climbing up, roses climbing up the walls where birds prefer to nest. It gives them better aeration. It's it's less disease ridden. It's It's got, you know, food at their disposal. You know, why are we cutting our seed heads every, you know, whenever a plant get, takes to seed? You know, shouldn't we be leaving them for the birds? And And actually doing that, you know, that first frost when your garden is full of seed heads is just absolutely astonishing. The different types of birds coming down into the meadow. My office looks onto the meadow as the different flowers go into seed. And you'll see sort of 50 um, little songbirds coming in and then chaffinches and different things. I really recommend the book, the new book, The Book of Wilding. And we'll put everything in the show notes um, where to get the book. And I can't wait to come and book in to visit NEP. That is top of my list. Well, let us know when you come. (laughs) Yes. And I would love if you ever come over to this part of Ireland, to the Burren, I would be honored to show you around our tiny little project, which we're going to be moving towards um, some more of your advice in the book. So um, thank you so much for writing that. And I just want to say from everybody, thank you for writing the story, because I think, you know, we said, you know, how do you approach the farmers, etc. I think the story was something that you could come into people's houses that they could read and really um, spread, you know, it spread everywhere, but it was because you put it down in black and white. Um, So thank you for doing that and for everything else. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It's been lovely chatting to you. News from Borough Nature Sanctuary. This is a busy time of year at Borough Nature Sanctuary with general visitors, groups and events even if we have had the wettest July in Ireland since records began, with over 215% more rainfall than expected. I was recently interviewed by Galway Bay FM Hours to Protect programme about our conservation and rewilding projects and the general lack of awareness of the biodiversity emergency. I'll put the link in the show notes if you want to catch the audio. Our swallows are very excited at the moment. They're meeting on the gutter of the upstairs office and doing a lot of flying practice and feeding around the meadow, ready for their journey back to Africa. A baby pine marten was spotted checking out the barn early one morning. So we are happy that these shy animals have successfully bred again this year in our rewilded area.